Good morning. If you have your Bible, open to Ezra chapter 9. Ezra chapter 9. I love that, uh, that last song. Um, Kendall and I were talking about what would be a, a great song uh, before the message, and that song uh, was on my heart early this morning. Uh, oh God, let us be a generation that seeks, seeks the face of God, seeks the, the will of God. Let us not lift our soul to another. Oh Lord, we cast down our idols. Man, that, that song, that song is a, is a prophetic witness to what we need today. Are you with me? That song speaks to what we, as the followers of Christ, need to do. We need to cast down our idols. We need to not lift our soul to another. We need to be the people who seek after the God of Jacob. We need to be God's people in this time. And so when Kendall asked, what, what song shall we sing this morning? I said, man, clean hands. God, give us, give us clean hands. Give us clean hearts. You know, this is, that's about having pure motives. That's about having pure motives. Actions. That's about being real and being authentic as we engage people in our culture. As we deal with the things that are going on around us, it is about saying, okay, God, what is it that you want? Because I want to do what you want above anything else. That's what it means to be real, to be genuine, to be authentic. And when we choose to start living that way, then people are going to stop saying Christians are hypocrites. Christians are about love. Jesus is right. I know those are Christians by the way that they love one another, by the way that they put others first. And so that song has just been, been speaking to me a lot this morning. So there's your, your mini-sermon before there's your sermonette before the actual message. But I think it ties in with what we're doing because we're trying to learn to see as God sees. You know, that's what we desire to do if we really are the people we say we are. I mean, if we're really God's people, if we're really trying to, to live after Him, if we're really trying to, to put His will into to practice in our lives, then we want to see as God sees, yes or no? Yeah, absolutely we do. And so, seeing as God seeing, sees, understands that, yeah, we do need to get rid of some things in our life. We do need to cast down some idols. We do need to cut out some stuff in our lives that don't line up with God's Word. If I'm going to see as God sees, and if I'm going to do as God does, then I might need to make some changes in my own life. And so that's what we've been talking about as we have begun this, this new series. Now then, last Sunday, we were supposed to talk about the, the second part, but we had just a little bit of weather last Sunday. Uh, not too bad. 
uh, you know, only like 15 uh, tornado warnings that were active during the time we were supposed to gather for worship. And so, you know, we, we, had, to, we had to duck and cover. And so, consequently, because of a schedule that we're trying to, to stay on with our, with our sermon series, we're going to just, we're going to leapfrog over that one, but I want to give you kind of the, the brief overview of what that one is. Because the word... The word from Ezra 7.10, that's going to pop up on the screen right here, it says this, Ezra set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his ordinances, his statues and ordinances in Israel. And what we've said all along is that in order to see as God sees, we must take in the word. And that's what we talked about on the, on the first week, that we are to get into the word that we ought to realize this is this is God's story. This is the story of Jesus. This is the story of the church. This is my story. This is your story. And we need to let it envelop us and realize that every single moment we live, we are living out the story of God. Okay? Well, last week's was really practical. Okay? Last week was basically, you know, and you know, I, I said that scripture is not a, an instruction manual. And I think it's wrong to look at the Bible as a just all it is is instructions. But as I also said, there are some instructions in it. And when we come across those instructions, we need to do them, right? Doesn't that make sense? We need, we need to do them. It's like what James talked about, the person who hears the Word and then doesn't put it into practice in their life. is like the person who goes to the mirror, sees what they look like, walks away and immediately forgets what they look like. Now then, there's a lot of times I want to forget what I look like. Okay, but that's what what James is saying, and we'll talk about that in a couple of weeks as we we get to our study of James, that, you know, we need to be not just hearers of the word, but we need to be doers of the word. Are you with me? We need to be doers of the word. Otherwise, we're like the mirror guy. We look, oh, hey, I see what I look like. Oh, wait, I can't remember. Okay, and so that's what last week was, that not only should we take in the word, recognizes that it's our story, but I need to live out. I need to put it into practice in my life. Okay? And, 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 and it's right there when we put it into practice. When we start trying to, to do it, that's where we start living with clean hands. That's where we start living with, with pure hearts and, and pure Motives. That's where we begin to change the narrative that says all Christians are hypocrites because now we're not just saying what we believe and we're not just telling everybody else how they should live. We're living it ourselves. You know what I'm saying? And that's the biggest problem. We've got advice on how everybody else should live their lives and a lot of times Christians don't even live what they say. Right? We need to change that. If we are going to call ourselves Christians, we need to live like Christians. And I've said this before, and if you're not going to do that, please, for the love of God, stop telling people you're a Christian. Okay? Because that does not help anything. But if you are a Christian, show that you are. By taking the Word in and then putting it into action putting it into process in your, in your life. And so that was last week. Now, today, we're talking about what might be the most 
difficult part of, of this sort of three-part plan that, that Ezra lays out, and that's the, the sending out the word. But I'm going to give us some practical advice on how we can do that at the end. More than 30 years ago, somewhere around 1983-84, when I was but a wee second grader, I stood up for the first time in front of an audience. And I was assigned a, a scripture reading. I had signed up for what my church called a Timothy class. And it's where they took boys of varying ages and they taught us to read scripture and they taught us to lead singing and they taught us how to say prayers and, and, and do some, some, some readings. And we worked on it for you know, several weeks and at the end of this, this time, whatever it was, on a Sunday night, the Timothy class was going to lead the congregation in, in worship. And so I had signed up, and I had gone every Sunday afternoon from like 3 o'clock to 5 o'clock to practice. And, you know, because I was a second grader, I was scared to death. Now then, you, you may not know this, and you really might not believe this, but I am much more introverted than you probably realize. And as a second grader, I was definitely introverted. I didn't want to talk to people. I didn't want people to talk to me at all. Okay, but for some reason, and I still don't know why, I agreed to do this. And so they assigned me a scripture, and I still remember to this day what scripture it was. Genesis 3.15, um, and I will put enmity uh, between, uh, between you and him, uh, between your seed and her seed, and he shall bruise your head, and he shall bruise your heel. Now then, I don't know why you give a verse like that to a second grader, because it's, it's pretty doggone scary. And I'm like, what, 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 are we talking about a snake bruising the heel, stomping the head? You know, I didn't know. I didn't know what on earth that was talking about. But the night came around that we were supposed to do this, and this was back in the day when they had those gigantic, huge wooden podiums that were meant to really separate the clergy from the laity and you know, all of that stuff. And so we had one of those. Uh, but, you know, I'm a second grader, and several other second graders were too, well, were too small to stand behind this thing. And so they built us this special little one. And, uh, and I still had to stand on top of a milk crate. And so I stood on this milk crate, and I'm beginning, and God will put enmity. You know, and as I'm reading, very confidently, a voice from the audience rings out. Hey, Jason! My brother decided to give me a shout-out. And I, my voice quivered. And I almost fell off the milk crate. Somehow I managed to get through the reading. I probably reversed the words and all this, that, and the other. But I was scared to death. It really is a wonder that I stand up and preach for a living. Because that was my very first experience as like an eight-year-old 30-something years ago, I was scared to death. And amazingly, I signed up for it the next year, and it went a, a little better after a good um, brotherly talking to with my, with my younger brother. But today, we're talking about what it means to send out the Word. And what does that mean? How are we supposed to do this? How are we supposed to send out God's Word? Well, when you learn to, to see as God sees, 
That means we are in the Word. We're knowing the Word. We're putting it into practice in our lives. And that also means that we must send it out. We must give it to others. And that's what we're talking about. Now, as you, we come to Ezra chapter 9 uh, and, and Ezra chapter 10, and I'm not really even sure how much of 9 we'll read. We're going to read some, and then we'll just, what seems like a good place to, to, to move on, we will. But as you, you come to Ezra chapter 9, you've got a lot of stuff that is happening. A guy named Zerubbabel, great name, by the way, if you're looking to name your child Zerubbabel. Anybody looking for baby names? I wonder if the potters would consider that. Zerubbabel Potter. Kind of rolls off the tongue. Yeah, I call him Zub. Zubel. Or Rubel. I don't know. But Zerubbabel had been in captivity with the rest of Israel. Israel was in captivity because they chose to do everything opposite that God said to do. They didn't listen. They broke covenant, all of this other stuff. They chose not to listen to God. After all the prophets, after Amos and Hosea and all of these guys have said, you've got to stop living the way you're living. You've got to, you've got to live the way God wants you to live. And finally, these guys, especially Amos, he brings down these, these fiery, just charged up messages about what God's going to do because the people have refused to listen. Okay? And, and true to His Word... God allowed Israel to go off into captivity because they were worshiping other gods. They were putting pagan practices that were really sickening in place in their life. And so anyway, they've gone off to, to captivity, but now it's time for them to start coming home. And so Zerubbabel comes and he leaves a huge number, just thousands of people, back to Jerusalem. And they, they get there. And the temple has been destroyed in, in 586 when Nebuchadnezzar comes in and just wiped out Jerusalem. And so their job is to rebuild the temple. And they do this, and it takes them a long time to, to rebuild it. Well then, I don't know, 60-something years later, 58, 60-something like that years later, Ezra leads another group back. And that's a much smaller group. It's around 2,000 People. And then 12, 13 years later, Nehemiah is going to bring the rest of Israel back in from captivity. As Ezra comes back to Jerusalem, it's not this grand homecoming. It's not, hey, we did it, we served our time, we took our punishment, we repented of our ways, things are great, hey, God of Jacob, that's our guy, you know, let's serve him. When Ezra gets back on the scene in Jerusalem, things are a mess. Because Israel is doing the exact same thing that got them sent off into captivity the first time. They're doing the exact same thing. The nation is an absolute mess. So he comes back home, the end of chapter 8 is talking about uh, these, these burnt offerings and all of these things that were made. And uh, Then you get into chapter 9, and it says, After these things were done, the leaders approached me, that's Ezra, and said, the people of Israel, the priests, and the Levites have not separated themselves from the surrounding peoples whose detestable practices are like those of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, 
Egyptians, and Amorites. Indeed, they have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and their sons, so that, now pay attention to this right here, so that the holy people has become mixed with surrounding peoples. The leaders and officials have taken the lead in this unfaithfulness. Ezra says, when I heard this report, I tore my tunic and robe and I pulled out some of the hair from my head and my beard and I sat down devastated. That's pretty upset, is it not? He comes back home and he realizes these people who should have learned their lesson absolutely have not. They have mixed with pagan society. Pagan society that worshiped the god Baal. You remember that from your, from your Old Testament studies? The false god Baal. They had these Asherah poles, these, these sort of sex and religion. It's all sort of mixed together. There was some really, really nasty stuff going on that all of these, these, these pagan Canaanite, all these other nations were involved in. And God said, you are my people. You are my chosen people. Of all the other peoples on the earth, and this is what Amos says, God says, you are my family, and you are to be set apart. You are to be a, a chosen priesthood. You are to be different because your job, Israel, your job is to show all the other nations on earth how to find me. Your job is to lead people to me. To lead people to God. That's why they were supposed to separate. That's why they were supposed to, to, to be different and to remain apart. But there's more, there's, there, there's more to it. So Ezra comes home and he, he sees this. And he sees the sin that Israel is steeped in. And it says he tears his robe and he tears his tunic and he tears his hair and he tears his beard. And it says that he sat down devastated. Which leads me to, to wonder, how many times are we devastated over sin in our own lives? Because it's easy, and, and, and when I say it's easy, I'm talking about myself. It is easy to just say, oh, oh well. It's easy to be lax about sin in our life, is it not? When was the last time we were actually devastated over sin in our own life? And I think that it's a good practice. We don't want to get caught up in the shame and all of that stuff. But I think, I think it's good practice for us to examine our lives. Especially when we blow it. And, and for just a moment, let the weight of that weigh on us for just a minute. Before we give that away to God. Be devastated by the sin in our lives because it's, only then that true repentance is going to happen. That true life change is going to come about. Then we give that to God and we release it to Him. And so Ezra is, is devastated by this. He hears these words. He hears what everybody says. Verse 5 says, At the, the evening offering, I got up from my humiliation with my tunic and my robe torn. Then I fell on my knees and I spread out my hands to the Lord my God. And he prays this prayer where he says, My God, I'm ashamed. I'm embarrassed to lift my face toward you. 
And so he offers this, this prayer. Now then, drop into chapter 10 and look at, uh, let's look at these verses here, what it says. While Ezra prayed and confessed, weeping and falling face down before the house of God, an extremely large assembly of Israelite men, women, and children gathered around him. The people also wept bitterly. Then Shechaniah, the son of Jehiel, an Elamite, responded to Ezra, We have been unfaithful to our God by marrying foreign women from the surrounding peoples, but there is still hope for Israel in spite of this. Therefore, let us make a covenant before our God to send away all the foreign wives with their children according to the counsel of my Lord. And those who tremble at the commandment of our God, let it be done according to the law. Get up, Ezra, for this matter is your responsibility. We support you. Be strong and take action. So that's what they determined to do. Now then, right off the bat, we have to acknowledge that this is a difficult text to read. Okay, this is a, a difficult text because you have people sending their wives and sending their children away. And we wonder, what on earth, why is the reason for that? Why does a, a priest, a, a leader of God's people, why does he say, yes, that's exactly what you need to do? Well, there's a, there's a reason for it. And we find that reason back in, in the prayer that Ezra prays in chapter 9. He goes through and he says, I'm ashamed, I can't lift my head towards you. But in verse 8 he says, but now for a brief moment, grace from the Lord our God has come to preserve a remnant for us and to give us a stake in His holy place. God's people are to be the chosen people, right? You with me? They're the be chosen ones. They are set apart. Their job is to others to God. The reason why they are supposed to separate is because God is holding on to this, this remnant. The last people that have returned from exile, these, are, these people that were in captivity that have returned, they are the last of God's people on earth. They are the remnant. Now then, here's the problem. Ezra comes back home, he sees the remnant, the remaining people of God who are supposed to point the rest of the world to God. He comes home and sees that the remnant has intermarried with people who do all this pagan religious practice, all these cultic stuff, all this, all this, this, this disgusting sexual acts and call it worship. And that's why he tears his tunic and he tears his robe and he tears his beard and he, and he tears his hair. You see, when they intermarried with pagan people, it began to dilute God's chosen people. You see, the reason why God told them not to, to intermingle with them is because he says, if you intermarry with those people, those people who have no respect for me, no authority, don't care, you're going to give in to temptation. And you are going to worship their false gods. And you're going to participate in their detestable practices. And I don't know if they're like, no, no, we're not going to do that. But yet that's exactly what they do. 
they end up worshiping false gods. They end up turning away from Yahweh. There's even places, and you read about it in the Minor Prophets, where uh, the Israelites are, are worshiping one way here, and they're worshiping another here, and, and one is devoted to, to Yahweh, and the other one's devoted to Baal, and they can't tell which one's which. They are completely confused because they've forgotten who they were. They have forgotten that they are God's people given a mission by God. And if this continues, if this continues, that means there'll be no more Hebrews. There'll be no more of God's people. And here's the bigger problem. If there's no more of God's people, if there's no more Hebrews, then there's no more Jesus. Does that make sense? Jesus comes through the Hebrew line. Jesus was a Jew. That's why it's not like God's a racist, but that's why God is preserving this people because in order to save his people, he's got to send his son through a line of people, through his chosen people. And that's why he says, you are the remnant. Your job is to hold this spot down. And you live the way I'm telling you to live so that Jesus can come along and redeem all mankind. You are, you are the remnant. And this, this is where you live. This is how you, you are to live. And so on a cold, rainy day, Ezra stands up before the people to confront, to confront their sin. Verse 9 says, So all the men of Judah and Benjamin gathered in Jerusalem within three days. On the 20th day of the ninth month, that's November, December, all the people sat in the square at the house of God, trembling because of this matter. In other words, they've recognized what they've done. Trembling because of, of this matter and because of the heavy rain, then Ezra the priest stood up and said to them, You have been unfaithful by marrying foreign women and adding to Israel's guilt. Therefore, make a confession to the Lord God of your fathers and do His will and separate yourselves from the surrounding peoples and your foreign wives. Then all the assembly responded with a loud voice, Yes, we will do as you say. The people do it. They respond just like in Acts 2. They're cut to the heart. They turn in repentance. They're confronted by their sin. They begin to tremble at their actions. In other words, they begin now in a different way to see as God sees. To see that, man, we really have blown this. We're, we're here for a specific purpose a purpose that's above any other group of people on the earth. We're here to be this remnant that Jesus Christ is eventually going to come through, and yet we're, we're destroying that. We're getting in the way of God's purpose and God's plan to save all mankind, and so they now will do what God says to preserve this remnant. They see as, as God sees now, because of Jesus, 
because of Jesus, it's no longer a, a, a physical people that are the remnant. Because of Jesus, if you've given your life to Him, you now are part of that remnant. Jesus came and He lived and He died and He was buried and came out of the tomb and He broke the bonds of sin and death that we just sang about. And we now are a part of that remnant. We are a part of the people that are supposed to point others back to God. Does that make sense? You see how this is our story as well? It's no longer just the Hebrews. It's now all people who have given their lives to Jesus. Okay, And we know that God wants everybody because think about that scene in Acts chapter 10. That crazy one where Peter's on the roof and the sheet lets down and there's clean and unclean animals. Kill it, eat. Peter, no, I can't do it. I've never eaten anything unclean. Happens three or four times. Finally, the voice says, nothing I've made is unclean. The metaphor was, there's no people that are any different from the rest of you. All people are the same in my eyes. And I accept anybody who turns to me in repentance and contrition in their heart. Peter says that we are a royal priesthood. We are a chosen people. We are, we are that, that remnant. And our job, our job is to help others see as God sees. Take in the Word and, and send out that Word. So the question to us then is how how do we see as God sees? How do we send out this word? More specifically, how do, how do we as, as men and women, how do we as, as spouses and, and parents, how do we as, as children and teenagers and brothers and sisters and bosses and employees, as students, how do we see as God sees? I think it's by following the advice of Ezra. Taking in the word putting it into practice in our lives and then sending it out to others. We take in the Word. We develop time and, and, and study in the story, recognizing that this is our story. Not only that, we put it into practice in our lives and then we send it out. And so that leads us then to another question. Well, how, how do we go about doing this? We know there's very few times in scripture where we're told to preach and to teach okay there's not that many places where the bible says that you'd think there'd be a bunch but there's actually there's actually only a few times at the end of his life on earth as he's getting ready to ascend back up to heaven jesus turns to his disciples his you know his his chosen guys and he tells them go into all the world Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you, and I'm with you always, even to the, to the very end of the age. Okay, so there's one. We call that the Great Commission, where Jesus commissions his apostles. You now take everything that I've taught you, everything that you've seen me do, and you go into the world and you do this. You baptize people in my name. You make disciples. You teach them how to be my people. Okay? You teach them how to, to do this. And, and, you know, that's why we sit here today. Because those guys took that commission seriously. And they went out and they, they shared 
the word. So here's the deal. Every single one of you must become preachers. Sound good? No? That's not right? Every single one of you must become Bible teachers, if not preachers, right? Oh, wait a minute. For some people, yes, that's true. God has called you. God has gifted you. He's given you ability to preach. He's given you the ability to teach and to study Scripture and to be able to to take that text and be able to help it come alive and help people to see it. But you know, there's, there's places in the book of James that says not everybody should teach. For lots of reasons. One, because of gifting. But two, teachers are held to a higher standard. Because teachers and preachers, pastors, are responsible for the spiritual guidance of a flock, of a, of a congregation. And so James gives that warning. Hey, look, before you do this, you need to know not everybody needs to be doing this. Okay, because not everybody is willing to accept the responsibility that comes with it. Okay, so yes, not everybody should teach. Not everybody should preach. That's also not because of that warning. It's also, too, because God gifts us in different ways, does he not? He gives us different abilities. Some of you are very, very, very good encouragers. Okay, some of you have a strong gift of of prayer ministry. Okay, some of you are are very, very good at at leading in, in servant ministry. Okay, and not everybody is gifted in the same way. Okay, that's why, you know, the Bible also says that he gave some to be apostles, some to be evangelists, some to be pastors, some to be teachers. Because not everybody is gifted in the, in the same way. Okay, so then that means we have to figure out what that, what that means. Because I recognize, because I felt this way when I was a second grader, it absolutely terrifies some people, and some of you, it absolutely terrifies you to think about standing up here and preaching or teaching. Does it not? Can I get an amen from those that it terrifies? Yes, it terrified me. Okay, I'm still terrified today. Okay, afraid I'm going to get up here and say the dumbest thing ever. Okay, which that's always a possibility, so be warned. Okay, and today could be that day. You never know. So when we recognize our gifts, we recognize, okay, not everybody can do this. How then, if I'm supposed to take in the word, if I'm supposed to do what it says, okay, part of what it says is to send out that word so how am I supposed to do this if I can't preach and I can't teach now if God has called you to preach and teach and you don't do it you're like the guy who took the talent and buried it in the sand you're not using it okay but the other thing is true too if God has gifted you in some other way maybe you're a singer you're whatever it might be if you're not using that talent God's going to take it away because you're like the guy who buried it in the sand and it was taken away from you you got to use the gifts that God has has given you all right, so then how do, we, how do we do this? How do we go about sending out the word if preaching or teaching is not our calling? Well, I think it's best to, to look at the advice that Paul gave to Timothy. Timothy was a young minister, uh, and evidently nobody was listening to him because when you're young, nobody thinks you have anything to say. Okay, now then, having been a young minister at one time, and, and no, that's not really, that's sort of relative now, 
Uh, but one time I was a young minister leading a church, and I felt like nobody listened to me. You know why? I was an idiot. Okay? I didn't know anything. I thought I knew stuff, but I didn't know anything. You know how it is. People try to give you advice on something. They haven't lived it themselves. It's like, uh, okay? Like the, the person who is not a parent and gives you parenting advice. You know what I'm talking about? Tell you how to raise your kids when they don't have any kids themselves. It's like, uh, okay, why don't you just run into this at great speed because I don't have time to deal with that. But I think Timothy was having some issues because he was young, because people didn't want to listen to him. And so Paul writes, and I'm going to read this to you from the New Living Translation. It'll be on the screen here in, in 1 Timothy 4.12. He says, don't let anyone think less of you because you're young. Be an example to all believers in what you say, in the way that you live, in your love, in your faith, and in your purity. That right there, I think Paul is saying, look, hey, nobody's going to listen to you right now. Because you're a young buck, you're a young whippersnapper, you're an intern. You think you know everything, but you've not been in the real world. Life hasn't kicked you in the teeth yet. You don't have any real world experience. You might not have experienced any failures that have shaped you and molded and, and seasoned you. You've not been through the crucible with people in something yet. But if you want people to pay attention, Timothy, here's what you do. And I think this goes for all of us too, especially if you've not been called to teach or to preach, but you want to know and you're serious about your commitment and you're serious about sending out the Word, I think these words apply to us as well. Set an example. Set an example by the way you live your life. You know, it's that old saying, I'd rather see a sermon than hear one. I think that's what this is about. Set an example in all of, in all of these ways. Set an example in your speech and in your conduct, you know, the way you live your life. Set an example in, in your faith as you, as you put that on display. Okay, as, 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 as Paul is talking about this, and he says, uh, be an example to the believers in all that you say. That's the number one thing that probably gets Christians in trouble quicker than anything else, does it not? And, and now there's another added dimension to this because it's not just what we say vocally it's what we say through technology through what we say in the social media in twitter and facebook and all of these other things and man i have seen so many christians especially during an election cycle hurt their witness If we are Christians, we have to be Christians everywhere, including social media. Because social media, boy, it's easy to sit behind the screen because there's a certain sense of anonymity, or at least we think there is. But you know what else happens on social media? People are also emboldened to talk. Have you ever noticed that? They're more emboldened to say something online than they would to your face. We cannot lose our witness because of our words. Matthew 12, 34, Jesus is talking. He says, out of the overflow of your heart, the mouth speaks. In other words, what you're putting in here, what you're putting in here is going to come tumbling out here. Does that make sense? And if we are going to be the people of Jesus... 
the things that better be coming out more than anything else better be stuff about Jesus or how Jesus would live. Okay? That's how you set an example with your words. You season them with grace. You season them with love. You season them with mercy. Now then, sometimes you've got to season them with, with exhortation, but you still speak the truth in what? Love. Don't blow somebody's doors in. Nobody's going to listen to you if you do that. Speak the truth in love. Okay, so set an example with your speech. But also set an example with your conduct or the way that you, you live your life. Paul would write to the, uh, the church in Colossae, in, in Colossians. And in in uh, chapter 1, verse 27, he would say, Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Think about what that entails. A manner... Now, can we really be worthy of what Jesus did for us? No, but we can try to. We can try to live that way. And so, Paul is telling the Colossians, live your life in such a way that it honors what Jesus did for you. Does that make sense? Again, there's another quick way to lose our witness. Okay? To, maybe we set an example with our words, but we blow it with our conduct. Words and conduct have to match. Does that make, does that, does that, am I right? That's sort of in process, but th I think that works, right? Our words, or our conduct, our action have to match our words. If not, there's a disconnect, right? That's where hypocrisy and, and, and all of those other things all those other things come in. He says, set an example in your love. Oh. Matthew twenty-two thirty-nine. 39. We sing the song. We call it the greatest commands. Jesus said, love your neighbor as you love yourself. Now, unless there's something just really going wrong, most of us do a pretty good job at loving ourselves. But we don't always do a good job at loving others. And Jesus talked about loving others. And our neighbor means more than just the person that lives next to us. Our neighbor means people that have lost their homes in storms. Our neighbors mean the refugees that are seeking safety because they're fleeing a country where their lives are in jeopardy every single day. And we don't know anything about that. They will know you are Christians by your love. You want to really show the world that we are real and we believe what we say? We have to show the world how to love again because I think we've forgotten how to love. Whew. I think Christians are more known for what they're against than what they're for. Jesus said, love one another. You love God with everything you've got. The second commandment is just like that one. You love your neighbor as much as you love yourself. He says everything else, everything else is in this book. Nothing else is more important than that. All the what? 
Law and the prophets hang on this. In other words, there's nothing else that trumps love. Oh, 1 Corinthians 13. Now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is what? Love. That's how we send out the word, by showing people that we love them. Whether we agree with them or not, I mean, there's plenty of people who we don't agree with. Okay, there's plenty of people who don't agree with me and I don't agree with them. But that does not give me the right to not love them. I may not like their actions, I may not like what they do or what they say, but I have to, if I'm going to call myself a follower of Jesus, I have to love them. Man, that ties into just a whole bunch of other stuff. Forgiveness, all those kinds of things. All right, next. Set an example to the believers in your faith. Scripture tells us that we are to walk by faith and not by sight. You know, a lot of people, it's, well, I, if, I don't, if, I don't, if I can't see it, I can't believe it. You know, that's not, that's not faith. Okay? Faith, faith is the substance of things that are hoped for. This is Hebrews 1, or Hebrews 11. It's the substance of things hoped for. In other words, the things I believe, the things that I'm longing to happen, the things that I'm expecting, like God's kingdom to be advanced in a community. Lives are to be changed. It's the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Can I actually physically see God? No. Do I believe He's there? Yes. If I can actually physically see God, that's no longer faith. That's sight. And we're to walk by faith, not by sight. Drop down a few more verses in chapter 11 of Hebrews, and it says, It is impossible to please God without faith. And so we have to show People show our community that we believe what we say. That we believe there is a better way to live. That Jesus died and, and bought us back and redeemed us. And that there is a different way to live. That we live into that. What we, we talked about it a few weeks ago. That where we become more like God. Because we're living into the redemption that we have. And we believe that there is a better way to live life. And so we put our faith behind that. And then finally, he says, be an example in your purity. And that one's tough. Matthew 5, Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart. You know, and again, this is, and this goes right into what we're going to start next week. That's, that's about not having false motives. Okay, I've known lots of Christians, and by lots of Christians, I mean me at times, where my motives have not always been pure. Okay, and it's easy to manipulate and do all those kinds of things. But if I'm really going to send out God's Word, I have to live pure. I can't be associated with things that are not pure. That's how I set an example. And I think that is how we, we send it out. You, know, you don't have to preach. You don't have to 
to teach. You don't even have to lead a Bible study if you'll set an example with your life. Now, then, it might mean that you do some of those things if God's called and gifted you that way. But if not, set the example by the way you live your life in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in, in purity. Jesus would also go on to say, no one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket, but rather on a lampstand that gives light to all those who are in the house. In the same way, let your light so shine before people so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. As we begin this new year at, at Cornerstone, I want it to be the most blessed year in our history so far. That's an uphill battle if we're doing that on our own, right? I mean, let's just look around and let's be honest. That's an uphill battle. But we have to be more than conquerors through Christ. That's the only way that we have the most blessed year possible that doesn't mean that it's all physical growth but it means the way we grow spiritually it means that we're becoming more christ-like in in what we are doing i want our marriages i want our families i want our homes i want our jobs and and relationships to be blessed i want i want you to be a blessing in someone's life in 2017 i want each member of Cornerstone to influence somebody for Christ this year. This year. Don't just depend on the leaders to do it because we cannot do it. And we're human and we will fail. Remember, if you have confessed Jesus, you are a chosen people. You are a holy priesthood. You are set apart of that remnant that is to point people back to God. To advance the kingdom. Show people that there is a better way. We do that by following the example of Ezra. He took in the word. He did what it said. And he sent it back into the world. Ezra 7, 9, and 10 says, The gracious hand of his God was on him. Now Ezra had determined in his heart to study the law of the Lord, to do it, and to teach its statutes and ordinances in Israel. Let's pray.